Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, a financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Great to be here today, guys. Yeah, good yeah. Saturday morning. It's a great day to be here talking about money again, as we do every week on our weekly radio show here. Um, you can catch us 9 to 10 a.m. Um, right here. Or there's other ways to listen, yeah, right, John? Go to our website, moneymd.net, and uh, we have podcast link there. A lot of people are listening. You can't make the Saturday. Maybe they're um, probably not sleeping in, but they're probably doing other activities, which is understandable. Sure. Um, sure. So you can listen to the podcast, or uh, there's actually a uh, link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream it from the Internet. So a lot of different ways to listen yeah, to Yeah, or listen on your iPhone, your yep. smartphone. You can listen, you know, on uh Tune in radio. Um, so there's lots of ways to listen. Yeah, no doubt. No excuse for not listening to the Money Doctors. And you can also check us out um, on our website, moneymd.net, where you can email us there. We'd love to have your questions. Or you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, guys, I think we have an awesome show lined up for today. You know, we're, we're all about mistakes today, helping you prevent <laughs> not mistakes, That's not right. making mistakes. Preventative so maintenance here. Yeah, so we're going to talk all, talk, start off talking about the costly mistakes that individual investors make. You no, know, tell me that's not so. I, you know, I wish it were not so, John. But you know, we meet with people on an ongoing basis. You know, we met with hundreds of investors over the past years, and you know, we see the same mistakes mm-hmm. over and over again. So we're going to talk about some of the costliest mistakes individual investors make. I mean, it's a great, great article here we're talking about. Yeah, and then we're going to follow up with um, uh, how to avoid 10 money mistakes. And these are for young parents. These are, you know, really millennials that are in their 20s and 30s. And some of the things that that we see out in the uh, the marketplace, some, some stats, some things that they're not doing the right way. So, you know, maybe you have um, kids that are this age that you can take some notes down and pass it on to them. Um, but these are these are ten things that um, they need to make some changes in order to get onto the right path. Yeah, you want to make sure your kids get off to a great start in their financial life. So that's a great, great, great segment. Well, then we're we're going to jump from one end of the spectrum to the other and uh, jump into Social Security and how your military service might affect your Social Security benefits. Mm. Uh, making sure that you're getting. Uh, the right overall benefit. We got have some interesting points there, so that, that should be a good section too. Yeah, that'll be an interesting topic. We've never talked about that before, but you know, military folks get some extra benefits, and they may not be getting them if they don't know about them. That, so. that, that's right. And so these these should be some pretty good points, especially some things, Steve, that uh, that you've brought out. Definitely. All right, that'll be interesting. Okay, and that leads up here though to our financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from uh, Zillow, which is a, a real estate. Um, type company that you know values real estate and so forth, and it's pretty interesting. The average first-time home buyer um, has been renting for about six years before they make a purchase. 
So, you know, you could look back and say, hey, maybe that was a part of the, the Great Recession that people were scared to buy real estate. It went way down. A lot of people, you know, their yeah. incomes went down as well. So renting um, is was a better option for a lot of people. So it took them six years before they purchased. Which, I mean, that seems like a long time for the average person. Do, do you have any numbers how that compares to, like, say, you know, seven or eight years ago? No, I don't. I don't. Okay. But I, I imagine it's extended. Um, I would, too. I would think of three or four years. The studies I see is more people are renting because it gives them options of, of moving. I mean, if they lost yeah. a job or you know, whatever they can, they're not committed to a house. And, you know, during the housing bubble, it you couldn't sell a house. That's and right. A lot of people are still underwater. So it's just more flexibility. In well, it. that and when people might've lost jobs or had some changes, um, they might not have qualified either mm-hmm. yeah. for financing. Yeah. That's it's true. a lot, so, yeah, a lot tougher. Yeah. They definitely tougher. changed their, uh, their regulations on that. Yeah. When we first got to school, we waited five years to buy a house, rented for five years, saved our money because we wanted to make a big down payment. We even had dreams of paying cash for the first house, mm-hmm. which, you know, I've told you that before. We, yeah. we came close. And uh, so we saved a ton of money because we lived off one salary. But um, my, my point is we were waiting longer than the average person, you know, our peers, you yeah. know, and our friends. So we waited five weeks. Yeah, it's probably about right. <laughs> I was up in St. Louis at the time, though, there so you we, you know, yes. we needed some stability. So I think two or three years average. Six years is a long time, yeah. so that's 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 interesting information. All right, well, that leads us up to our first topic, though, um, the costly mistakes individual investors make. You know, this is an article out of uh, the dailyfinance.com, and we've added our our points to it as well. Um, John Shamol is the author of this, and it's um, – it is interesting because over the years we've seen about every investment mistake that you can imagine, guys. Um, you know, as we've met with people in the, in our business, I mean, some of them are obvious, like you know, selling out at the bottom of a correction, heaven forbid. Um, but others are a little more subtle, you know. I mean, and regardless of of what the mistakes are, we've learned a lot about people through this process of sitting down with folks and hearing their goals, their concerns, and their ambitions. And we've seen a lot of different strategies and ways of thinking about your investments, but we've seen a lot of costly mistakes that add up to significant money, you know, when they play out repeatedly over time. And some of these mistakes are the result of simply not knowing the right things to do. Um, However, many of them, unfortunately, are the results of not making sure that you or someone is actively paying attention to your investments or having a sound strategy with your investments. So we're going to go through um, some of the costliest mistakes here by individuals and some of the ways to avoid them. So here's number one. Yeah, I think you make a good point, Steve. Some some things are very confusing out in the marketplace, but there are some things that just, you know, lack of attention, lack of uh, detail. And this first one falls into that latter category, it, you know, abandoning accounts and just letting them sit there, letting them drift. And uh, it's likely one of the costliest mistakes um, is just ignoring your investment accounts for years and sometimes even decades. And this can result in, a, in some problems um, that you may not think about, like maybe losing, you know, the entire holding if you aren't properly diversified. We see people in individual stocks, yep. uh, WorldCom, Enron. I mean, there are a lot of companies that not a lot. There are some companies that have gone bankrupt and their retirement has been been uh, pretty much, you know, gone you know because they're they're not diversified also not rebalancing to stay in line with your your current risk tolerance as one of your assets moves you know looking to rebalance may be a good thing to look at and also you know having accounts eaten away by by fees and poor returns not being properly diversified there so we've seen investors lose tens of thousands of dollars simply because they've ignored their accounts a lot of times people don't know even where 
they're invested when you talk to them about it. For, so, for some of them, it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We see that with old 401ks all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say, you know, I think I had a 401k when I worked, you know, 10 years ago at this place. Yeah. Um, and you check on it and, you know, who knows? It's been sitting and fixed all that time, earning almost nothing. Or maybe it's been in one stock and, you know, it's it's had a had a tumble. So, uh, yeah, you got to pay attention. So the solution is schedule times at set intervals to check in on your investments, you know. And it doesn't have to be that often. It can be quarterly, every six months, even annually will suffice. But mark it on your calendar. Make sure that you look at where things are and how you're invested, what the expenses are. If you have an advisor, then schedule an annual review each January to sit down and, and take a look at where things are and make sure you're still on track to meet your goals. So that that's a good one. All right, the next one here on the list is not paying attention to fees. You know, this is very important and it's one of the frustrating mistakes that we see investors make and that's not paying attention to the cost inside their investments. Um, you know, when these are overlooked, they they add up and they can be a significant drain on your portfolio. Um you know, one of the two most common areas that we see cost adding up is in trading too often yourself or inside the funds that you're invested in. Um, trading often uh, will can, can be really hard to counteract because, you know, if you consider yourself to be an active trader, um, you have to keep in mind there are a lot of costs associated with that, like commissions, spreads, sometimes markups. Um, so if you're investing in something like an annuity, then there's a whole other layer of insurance expenses. So, I mean, those expenses can all really add up, so you have to pay attention to costs. Yeah, and this is something that uh, we we all focus on and try to talk with our clients and people that we sit down with uh, quite often to make sure that we, we look at the fees. You know, one big fee that far too often many overlook is the mutual fund uh, expense ratio fee. According to a paper by two University of Pennsylvania law school professors, the average mutual fund uh, fee is 1.31% and can vary anywhere from 0.05 to over 2% sometimes. And that can really, really add up over the course of 10 years. You know, it, it could cost some people as much as $1,500 or more. So mm-hmm. paying attention to those fees, uh, like you said, Steve, that's that's very, very important. Yeah, that's right. And internal trading costs can be as much of that or as or more. Um, so you really have to take a look at the whole picture, understand how your investments, you know, charge yeah. and what the big picture is with expenses. The, the trading costs, we talked about a little bit right there. But, it, you know, we look at turnover ratio. The higher the turnover ratio, that means the more, you know, churning inside the mutual fund that goes on. And there are studies that put that cost you know, it can it can be it can be a small amount depending on the type of stocks, but it can be upwards of one to one and a half percent. So there's there's some real cost in mutual funds. A lot of times people see no load funds and they think there's no cost, and that's not true. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a big deal, you know, and that's been proven to be one of the factors that that adversely affects your return is the higher the cost. You know, the higher cost, the lower the return has been. Uh, has been proven to be a correlation there. Okay, well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call during regular business hours, 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD. We'll be right back after these messages. Money, 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 money
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our discussion here um, before the break about the costly mistakes individual investors make. You know, guys, I mean, we, we sit down with people, you know, hundreds of people over the the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, and um, we've seen, it seems like, every conceivable mistake you can make. Mm-hmm. And But yeah. there are a lot of them that repeat, that you see over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, the first one we talked about was abandoning your accounts and just letting them drift and not paying attention to those. Um, it, we see that all the time with old 401k counts. You got to pay attention to all your accounts, you know, and and you got to try to get them in one place, consolidate them where you can pay attention to them, and schedule some time to to check over those, you know, once a year or so, you know. I mean, end of the year or January is a good time to do that. Maybe when you're getting your tax information together, you know, schedule an annual review with your advisor if you have one. Um, another thing though is not paying attention to fees because fees are like a continual. You know, they're a continual drag on your return, and it's been proven that the higher the cost, the lower the return um, over time, you know, from studies. So you got to pay attention to fees, and it's not just what's on the surface. It's internal. You know, they're internal costs, so you need to look at the whole picture and make sure you have a good handle on what your investments are costing you. So that's a big deal. And then the next one here on the list, though, is improperly diversifying. In other words, not being well diversified with your investments you know diversification is one of those things when it's done right i mean it is the hallmark of prudent and wise investing however many of the retail average investors out there you know believe that they're doing it correctly with mutual funds when they're actually buying the same stocks inside the funds and exposing themselves to higher risk Um, the problem goes back to the fact that Many of the popular mutual funds out there own the same core stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times they're large U.S. stocks. We see this all the time. But few investors realize that the average, uh, of, you know, there's a relatively small number of really popular stocks that form the core of many mutual funds, albeit in different allocations. So, you know, while attempting to diversify, many investors end up highly concentrated in that pool of core large U.S. stocks that, that people tend to, to buy or mutual fund managers tend to buy. You know, other problems come up whenever you pick a number of stocks to invest in yourself and you believe that this makes you diversified. Unfortunately, that's not usually the case, you know, since many times the stocks you pick are going to fall into the same industries, the same asset classes like large U.S. stocks. So, I mean, those decisions will leave you less prepared to weather the down markets and put you at risk for increased losses when markets are down or even when markets are good. So the solution is review each fund's top holdings to avoid duplication. Consider, you know, index funds or asset class funds, which own an entire index or asset class. That way you're going to have a portfolio that's represented by hundreds, even thousands of stocks 
in dozens of industries instead of just a handful of individual stocks. Yeah, that's that's a, very, very important. That's a good one. And the next one here on the list is being an emotional investor. And, guys, we spend a lot of time talking with folks on um, – you know this topic and and we see the the studies and the stats and so forth and i think most of us know the perils of being an emotional investor and you know while it may um, make sense to follow the herd when you're investing in stocks it generally comes back to harm you in the long run i mean that's what we see from the dow bar and you know all these other it studies does. we look at is trying to market time is not is not an effective way to to invest and you know, also, there is no more powerful motivator uh, for making snap decisions than fear. In fact, research has proven that it's much more powerful than the desire for a gain. So that fear kind of grips you sometimes. And, you know, the desire to make money will lead people to take action eventually. But, you know, fear can lead to a snap decision that, you know, a lot of times can be disastrous. So trying to keep those emotions in check. Um and that's one one of the you know advantages of working with an advisor. Typically, that what we read is trying to keep people focused on their plans. Yeah, that's where an advisor really earns their money is is keeping the discipline in the process and not uh, you know trying to help take the emotions out of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but here are some signs of that you're an emotional investor. Um, one is holding on to a stock, thinking that it'll come back at some point, and not wanting to take the loss even though it'll help you in your taxes. Um, so hanging on to the losers, that's an emotional sign. The other one, another one here is wanting to sell out of your portfolio at the first sign of a significant drop in the market. Um, you know, we see that occasionally. And then also being glued to the financial news cycle on a daily basis. Mm, that'll drive you, know, you crazy. That will drive you crazy. And it also leads to those emotions. You know, you get you get all these emotions ginned up, all the talking heads out there, mm-hmm. and it leads you to try to take some action, you know, thinking that you have to do something. Um, so you you got to get off the, the media news cycle. And literally, that can change from morning to afternoon. That's oh, absolutely exactly you know, right. I mean, or sometimes even hour to hour. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So emotions, it will cost you when it comes to money. Many investors who held out of the market over the past five years lost out significantly as a result. I mean, more often than not, they held out due to fear. So the solution is stay the course. Be rational and patient. Focused on your long-term goals. You will likely be much better off over the long term if you do that. So don't be an emotional investor. The last one, or well, next one here on the list, um, two more, not investing early enough. You know, almost all of us have been guilty of not getting serious about investing at an early age, right? Um, you know, many people think that either they can't afford to invest or they have too little to invest um, for it to mean anything, or that maybe they can postpone investing and catch up whenever they have more disposable income. You know, whatever the excuse, the result of uh, of not investing early is the lost opportunity to grow your money. I mean, it's a big deal. That and, and time is something that you can never get back. That's you know? right. So find a way to start investing, you know, as early as your 20s, if possible. And if you're not 20, then encourage your, your child or your grandchild, you know, to really consider starting as early as possible because it's really it helps create a mindset if you only have a small amount you know to start with start where you can you know many many brokers have either no minimum deposits or require as little as say $250 to get started you know and that, that's one thing that we again we talk to people about is start where you can and then just make that part of your 
you know, monthly routine to put back a little at a time. It, it might not seem like a lot now, but over the course of time, that's really, really going to add up. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, and then the last one here is ignoring taxes. Um, you know, some people are totally unaware that there are taxable consequences to dividends or realizing gains through the sale of investment. You know, whether or not, um, whether you like it or not, the Internal Revenue Service, they want their share, and this can add up to hundreds, you know, to thousands of dollars, um, even tens of thousands to dollars when you're not paying attention to what the, the cost of the taxes are. So you need to consider that. The solutions take advantage of the tax savings available through retirement plans and tax-deferred vehicles like Roth IRAs or regular IRAs. Um, if you like getting dividends or trading, do that inside of a retirement account to shelter yourself as much as possible. And this also means knowing what not to hold an IRA, like tax-free investments or municipal bonds. Um, you know, take a tax-managed por- – consider a tax-managed portfolio if you have a lot of after-tax money you're investing. That can be a powerful tool for after-tax money by deferring the realized gains. Yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. Well, that leads up to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with um, uh, divorces and something called a quadro. Um, You know, a lot of times we'll sit down with someone that comes in and they say, well, I have a quadro and what should I do with it? And a quadro is it's a qualified domestic relations order. It's basically a court document saying that one of the spouse's assets are going to be split. And so a 401k that has 200,000 in it may be split 100,000 to each spouse. And um, so that's what a quadro is. And we see that a lot of times coming out from the divorce decrees, how they split assets. So, you know, what should you do with it? Well, it's a retirement asset. So if you pull money out, you're going to have taxes and penalties if you're under the age of 59 and a half for the penalty piece of it. So you really have to kind of step back and see what your assets are, your liabilities, and develop a plan. More than likely, it's going to be better just to hold that and try to use that for retirement. Right. Um, you know, it depends on the search, uh, you know, circumstances and situation you're in. But, you know, if you start pulling money out of a, a 401k that is a quadro, it's you're going to have a whole bunch of taxes. Right. 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 So, yeah. Retirement plan. So you definitely want to keep that for retirement if you can. Yeah, that's right. Try to stay away from pulling it out. All right. Good. Good question of the week. And uh, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions for us, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates during regular business hours, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and Jimmy News. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marvin, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are going to um, lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is um, 10 money mistakes to avoid. Yeah, this is really focused on on younger parents. So parents in their 20s and 30s, they're, they're millennial uh, folks and um, just kind of going through and looking at some things that um, you know the data and the research is showing that they're making 
mistakes on, and and uh, they don't really cross over necessarily with what we talked about earlier. These are more specific on the financial side versus investing, if you and it's will. It's really so, targeted toward young people, typically, yes, you know, twenties right. and thirties, like you said, millennials. So if, yeah. So if you are older and you have kids, um, you know, you can certainly. Um, you know, pass these on to them. The first one here on the list is is struggling with financial literacy, um, but failing to to get help. I mean, there was a study recently by Fenra that revealed that millennials are the least knowledgeable generation when it comes to economics and finance. And that's that's kind of sad if you think about it. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. our schools are not teaching our kids a lot of these basic skills that everybody needs to have. Yeah, you would think at this point in our society. That would be a required part mm-hmm. of high school curriculum. Yeah, you know, absolutely. is basic financial skills and and you know terminology and literacy. Yeah, that's right. So they're um, the least knowledgeable, and they're also the least likely to get professional help with their money, according to a survey from iQuantify. Most young workers have um, who have financial questions will turn to family and friends, and only 29% will actually ask a financial advisor. So there's some hesitation there. You know, you know, one reason that I've heard why people, especially in this age bracket, that won't uh, ask financial advisors is because they say, I don't have enough money mm-hmm. uh, to invest or something like that, or or how much is it going to cost me just to even ask or inquire yeah. you know, yeah, uh, with they, professionals and you, sometimes. And I think you don't know what you don't know, so right. you know, they're, they don't even know what to ask because they're right. just scared of the whole topic. It's just a big gray area to them. Yeah, and obviously we, we try to help with financial literacy, so listening to – Radio shows. Dave Ramsey has a lot of good information. Clark Howard, Susie Orman. There's a lot of information out there that you can go seek help from. So that's number one on the list. Number two is is being too risk adverse when it comes to investing. I mean, when it comes to money, millennials are the most conservative generation since the Great Depression. Um, a recent study revealed that young workers are allocating 75 percent of their retirement savings to cash and bonds. Ouch! That's probably not the best plan. It's not going right. to pay much in today's especially world, especially for long term. Yeah, only twenty five percent in equities, but with with at least thirty years until retirement, millennials have plenty of time to absorb the risk associated with investing in stocks and take advantage of the growth potential. We've talked about that many times. The compounding interest over time makes a huge deal. That's exactly right. Yeah, the third one here on the list is not saving enough for retirement. I mean, boy, how how many times do we try to hammer this and mm-hmm. beat this into Young folks, you know, uh, mind. I mean, according to recent data from the the Indexed Annuity Leadership Council, thirty seven percent of millennials say they have no money saved for retirement. None. So that's over a third. Then twenty four percent, so about a fourth, say they they owe more than they've saved. You know, um, that's too bad. I mean, so for if you're in your twenties or thirties, particularly if you're in your thirties, I mean, you got to be past the stage where you know, you're not saving money for retirement. You got to get serious because you're you're you know you're halfway mm-hmm. you know age wise you're halfway there. Um, the default contribution rate contribution rate for most employer sponsored plans remains at about three percent, and that is much lower than what's needed. You know, the ten to fifteen percent that's recommended by most financial advisors. We recommend fifteen percent eventually your total contributions. But if you can get your part up to ten, they say the average company match is four and a half percent. So if you get your part up to ten, you'll be about there at fifteen percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean you're missing out on free money if you're not getting your match. You gotta get that. And what you need to do is just gradually over you know, every time you get a raise, you need to add one or two percent to that contribution till you get it up to at least ten percent. Yeah, that's right. That's the key. 
Next one is uh, number four, being underinsured. Um, according to a recent study from Bankrate, 37% of parents don't have life insurance, and those who do carry just a very modest policy. You know, and this can, especially for a young family, this can be very, very dangerous and costly. Uh, many families believe that life insurance costs much more than it actually does. Uh, but in reality, young parents can get a decent policy for somewhere around fifty dollars a month. Oh yeah, it's you know, or it, or even less. Yeah, absolutely. very reasonable, good term policy. That's right, and that's that's what we encourage uh, people to look at. Um, it's also a good idea to 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 ensure a stay at home parent. In fact, I, I have a personal story where a, a friend of my, his wife, great health. I mean, just one day she passed away. Mm-hmm. No, no, mm-hmm. no calls. They they wow. really couldn't uh, pinpoint it, and um, they had a young child, and thankfully they had a sizable life insurance policy on on her, and it helped Good. take care of sure. you know the child and gave him some time to really get get his bearings back straight and get on track. Yeah. yeah, if young people have a good twenty or thirty year term policy, absolutely know, that'll get them all the way through the you know college years and, and that your mortgage. You know, make mm-hmm. sure that it's sure. covering your mortgage. Exactly. Yeah. Number uh, five here on the list is is credit cards. Um, interesting that sixty three percent of adults um, age eighteen to twenty nine, according to Bankrate, don't even have a credit card. And while this might seem uh, responsible at first. Uh, they go on to say that uh, a strong credit score is necessary to, to buy a home or a car or so forth. Obviously, Dave Ramsey would have a few things to say about that, paying cash for a car. And, um, you know, your income is certainly one of the more important things when you do buy a house. They're going to look for consistent income. So, um, But they say, you know, everybody should have a credit card. I'm not sure I agree with, with that statement, but that's kind of what they're talking about here. And the next one here on the list is overpaying for child care. The average full-time annual child care cost in the U.S. has reached over $16,000 for an infant and about $12,000 for a four-year-old, and that's according to uh, Child Care Aware. Um, that means if you have a toddler and a new baby, it could cost over half of the average household income to send them to both daycare. I mean, that's incredibly expensive. That is incredibly <laughs> expensive. So yeah. there's, some, there's some things that you can do. Um, s- some services out there called Nanny Share. Uh, churches, nonprofits, uh, maybe family members, um, you know, can help to lower that cost. And you can also qualify, maybe qualify for a tax credit of up to $3,000 of your child care expenses with the child care independent tax credit. So that's a that's a big deal. I meet with a lot of young couples, and they struggle with the cost of it. It's very, very expensive. Yeah. I, you know, I think it would be a great idea for, for two young couples to kind of pair up. And, you know, if the spouse or the wife wants mm-hmm. to work part-time, to just take turns, you know, keeping their kids, you know, and say, you know, you work, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, Thursday through Saturday. And, right. You know, we we actually do that, Steve. That's with, great. With, with some friends of ours from church. Yeah. And and Jill and our other friend, they they swap on and off. Super. Um, yeah. Watching each other's kids and helping, you know, free up some of that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. The next one here is keeping up with the Joneses. Um, you know, how many times have we heard this? Yeah. A survey from UBS revealed that um, compared to older generations, millennials are more concerned with how their wealth compares to their peers. You know, these young adults are concerned, uh, they're accustomed to having the latest smartphone and designer clothes, and they'll likely become the parent of a baby who has an expensive gadget 
or the you know latest designer onesie for their babies, <laughs> you know. But I mean, keep in mind. I mean, kids grow out of their toys. They could care less about most toys. They want to play with the box. Mm-hmm. You know, clothes are very very quickly become you know uh, too small. They won't even remember any of it. So you know, a smarter idea is to save the money for something that they will actually need for the future. I.e., college. That would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so yeah, I mean, don't don't waste your money on a lot of designer stuff or gadgets for your kids. You know, you you got to start saving. That's that's the yeah. key. Forget about what the Joneses have. Don't worry about that because you don't know what their mortgage looks like. And I could tell you, it's probably huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and you, and you don't envy that at all. Yeah, you no, don't envy so. that. Here, here, number eight's a newsflash. Um, guess what? Babies are expensive. No. No, I'm really? serious. Uh, babies are expensive. And uh, according to parenting.com, a family will spend $12,000 in the first wow. year That's of a baby's a life. You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> believe that. You, you can pretty quickly if you're not careful. So, you know, as soon as, soon as you know you want to have a baby, you need to start thinking about the costs that are associated with that. And it's not to say that there will ever be the perfect time. Okay, financially to have a child, but you do need to consider the cost for sure. Don't forget the doctor visits, you know, hospital visits, diapers, child care, and time off work. So there are definitely some costs that are associated with it uh, that need to be considered at the forefront. Yeah, I'm going to cover the the last two here pretty quick. Not having an emergency fund, guys, we talk about that frequently. 65% of Americans don't have an emergency. That's according to Bankrate. you know, so you got to have a rainy day fund. If you don't have that, you're either going to go into debt or you're going to go into your retirement. Those are the only two places, only two uh, solutions. So got to put that emergency fund at the top of the list. And then the last one here is not saving for college. I mean, college is so expensive. Um, some great plans. South Carolina has a good 529 plan. There are ESAs, education savings accounts that you can do. Um, but that's where all this planning that we talk about comes in because we have limited incomes and we have some priority expenses, right? Paying off debt, emergency funds, retirement, college. And you've got to have a plan to hit all of those and kind of do them in order. That's that's why Dave Ramsey has been so successful with that. So uh, these are just, you know, 10, 10 tips here. If you have any questions, you can certainly uh, reach out to us, and we'll be more than happy to help. Yeah, make sure your kids, you know, uh, young adults, that they, they get on the right track early on and start saving and don't get in the habit of spending too much and running up debt. So those are all great tips. Good good topic. That leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marvin, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is a financial advisor with Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are continuing our last segment here, um, starting off with the prescription of the week. Yeah, this has to do with timeshares. We get people that come in the office that um, have had a timeshare, and they can't get rid of them. It's yeah. not easy once you buy it. Uh, the industry was smart, and they started deeding them. So you owned it, and you you had that lifetime of maintenance fees. And they have, you know, sometimes can hit you with some big one-time cost as well. So, 
and it's hard to sell. So um, <clears throat> Dave Ramsey has partnered with a company to to sell to buy these timeshares, and I don't know all the details of it. Do your due diligence and read about them. But you can go to a website. It's called timeshareexitteam.com, hmm. and it's timeshareexitteam.com. And I did hear Dave talk about it on the radio uh, last week, and he said, yeah, you're going to write a check to them, but you'll be able to get out of it forever. So it's not going to be free. There's going to be some cost involved in it, but for so people this, that want to get out of it, this may be a reasonable option. So these are for timeshares that you can't sell in the open market. I, I don't know exactly. I think it's I think it's one anyone. I think okay. it's any timeshare. Okay. So they, maybe you they, won't write a check. Maybe maybe they'll pay you for it yeah, if it's maybe, worth something. Maybe. But I would go into it thinking that you know it's probably going to cost you something for them to take it off your hands. But it may be better than keeping it for the next you know twenty twenty five years and then passing it to your kids. Yeah, I mean so. that's the key is to realize your timeshare is probably not worth very much, regardless of what you think it's worth. Yeah. You know, you got to go on. I mean, eBay. There's a lot of them for selling eBay, so you can kind of check the value and see what they're selling for on there to know what yours is worth. And you know, and it, and it may be one you can't sell because the maintenance fee is higher than you know what somebody can go rent it for. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there, there's a number of different timeshare uh, websites that that you can check out, and literally you can find timeshares priced from zero mm-hmm. up. Yeah, right. Some people yeah. are literally wanting to just yeah. give them away yeah. and be done because with of the, the maintenance, maintenance costs. That's right. And, yeah. Uh, sometimes those, those can really add up mm-hmm. as well. Okay, good prescription of the week. And that leads up here to our last topic, and that is how military service affects your Social Security benefits. I mean, this is interesting because, you know, Social Security is very, very complicated just by itself, even though on the surface it doesn't seem like it, but when you dig into it, there's a lot of complicated details and then military service adds a whole nother level of complication that you, if you're an ex-military, you may not be taken advantage of. So I think this is a great topic. That's right, and especially being here where we are in our location. Hopefully we have a couple of military uh, listeners from mm-hmm. Fort Gordon and even beyond. So I, I felt like this was uh, a timely topic um, that we wanted to touch on. So if you've served in the military You've lived on bases, you know, ships, installations, and submarines. You've, you've been all over the place. Uh, your fine dining experiences have included hundreds of days of consuming MREs, mm, you know, and, and fast grabs at the PXs and commissaries. So you've been deployed to remote corners of the world uh, while immersing yourself in a lifestyle of other, uh, with others, should I say, without military service that they have no experience of, you know. My dad and my granddad were both in the United States uh, Air Force. Several of our clients were also former military, um, you know, service people. And first of all, if we would like to say thank you for your service. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for what you've uh, sacrificed and dedicated to our country. And what they and others need to know is that military service can have an effect on your future Social Security benefits. Of course, it depends on when and how long you served, and we're going to take a little closer look at that. Like Steve mentioned earlier, Social Security can be very complex, but you know, if you add military service to it, it can even add another layer to it. So, Yeah, and so the first one here is interesting. This is, relates to the Korean War, so this is for older folks. Um, you know, that went on from 1940 to 1956. You know, so if you're likely in your 70s if you if you served in the Korean War. I mean, and so if you served in the Korean War, you know, you didn't pay into FICA um, during that service period. The military was not subject to FICA, which is Social Security tax, until 1957. 
So, of course, you deserve credit for the years that you served, even though those years of service don't appear on your earnings record. So Social Security will manually post $160 per month wage credit to your earnings record for each month you were on active duty. So you just need to check your record, make sure you're getting credit for that. If you didn't, you can go back to the Social Security Administration. Right, and this this particular one does affect my grandfather, my granddad. So he he was actually in the Korean War. Um, And so this is something I probably need to share with him. Hopefully he's listening. How to register, then, you know, how do do you register for that extra, uh, extra wage credit? Excuse me. To prove the months served in active duty, Social Security, they'll require a copy of your uh, military discharge form, and that's the DD-214. Uh, if you have lost the form, Social Security, they'll help you locate it. So, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of get your hands on. Yeah, there are also some exclusions for this extra wage credit as well. So if you are already receiving a military pension, the individual wage credits will not apply. And if your military years are not within the top 35 wage-earning years, um, you know, filling out that form may not be needed. So there's a couple of – this is where Social Security gets tricky. I right. mean, it really yeah. – there's a lot of exclusions and inclusions and so forth. Um, so that's the Korean War. Then the next one is the Vietnam era. It's 1957 to 1977. And since FICA tax on military pay began, you know, in 1957, your payment was most likely subject to FICA tax. So while your military service will appear on your earnings record, you're entitled – to receive a $300 credit in additional earnings per quarter of active duty. And this credit does not appear automatically for any years prior to 1968. So that's another thing you want to you know take a look at. That's right. And here's how you register for that $300 quarterly credit. The best way is to prove the months served in active duty is to submit that proof of service. Again, that's usually through the DD-214 form. You know, that's, that's always kind of the default form mm-hmm. uh, for all of these type yeah, of things. And there are, so there are some exclusions for this extra wage credit. I mean, if you're already receiving military pension, the individual wage credit doesn't apply. And if your military years are not within the top 35 years, which is, you know, those are the years that count towards Social Security, your top 35 earnings years, then obviously you're not going to need to uh, to apply either because it's not going to no, That's right. It, it really won't benefit you there. So, And then uh, military service from 1978 to present. If you served uh, after 1978, you paid FICA you know, on your military earnings already. Social Security will credit you with an additional $100 for every $300 in active duty basic pay you received. So that's $100 for every $300. Uh, in active duty pay. Nice. This benefit has a maximum, though, of $1,200 annually. Mm-hmm. So what okay. are some of the exclusions for that additional $100 there, Steve? Well, yeah, um, same thing here. You know, if you enlisted after 1980, you didn't complete your 24 months of active duty service, then you're not eligible for the additional $100 credit. Okay. All right. Um, and, you know, obviously, if it doesn't fall within those top 35 uh, 35 years with the extra $100, I think that's going to be another one. Right, it won't benefit you then either. Yeah, and then in 2002, the, the Defense Appropriation Act, it, it stopped the special extra earnings that have been credited to military service personnel. Uh, the military service in calendar year 2002 and future years no longer qualifies for these special extra earnings, so it does cap the time frame as well. Okay. All right. Well, you know, there there's things that we definitely need to consider when we're looking at military 
pensions. You know, service members who receive a military pension can also receive a Social Security benefit. However, there are numerous factors that can be um, that can affect an individual's monthly payments. For example, if you receive military disability pension and apply for Social Security, your total compensation then it becomes limited. Uh, Social Security payments also affect VA pension payments. So, you know, one one thing that you need to consider here is that if if you do fall within this realm and and it's going to be having some effects, you need to speak with someone, especially like a tax advisor. Uh, that that knows the military system here and that has some working knowledge uh, of how this is going to affect you, you yeah. know, tax-wise. And a lot of times people come into our office asking about Social Security and, you know, you have to go to the office. I mean, they yeah, have go to the, the Social Security Administration. They have the detailed systems and they have your earnings records and they'll be able to, to help decipher. That's right. And then sit down, take the time, because this is something that you really, really want to get right. You know, any, anytime the, the government, anytime you owe them money, they're, they're going to chase you it, down, yeah. you know, and, and get it. They're not going to chase you down to make sure that your benefit that you're receiving uh, exactly. is correct, you know, always. So this is something that definitely needs some attention and detail. And Yeah. And the first step, you know, for Social Security is always log on to the Social Security website, mm-hmm. ssa.gov. You know, open an account there. Get your benefit statement. Check the earnings on your benefit statement going all the way back. And make sure those top 35 years they are going to count toward your Social Security are correct. Are actually the, the top 35, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So check your earnings record on your Social Security benefit statement. But you got to log on and open an account yep. to do that. All right. Great discussion, guys. And that brings us to a close of this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or give us a call during regular business hours, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Jesus is too